Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation and presentation with Lloyd Kahn and Michael Lerner. Lloyd Kahn, welcome back to the New School. Thank you. Uh, Lloyd, I'm going to read a brief bio from the back of your wonderful, most recent book, Tiny Home, Simple Shelter. And uh, all you say is, Lloyd Kahn ran a newspaper in the U.S. Air Force in the late 1950s, worked as an insurance broker for five years in San Francisco, then as a carpenter for about 10 years. He was the shelter editor of the Whole Earth Catalogs, published Dome Book One in 1970, Dome Book Two in 1971, and Shelter in 1973. He lives with his wife, Leslie, on a half-acre homestead in Northern California. And uh, in the longer Wikipedia piece on you, um, uh, I just want to read this, uh, this final paragraph, which says, in keeping with his fitness theme, Khan, at the age of 77, continues to surf, paddleboard, and skateboard, longboard, he lives and works in Bolinas, the, the name is revealed, a small town on the Pacific coast north of San Francisco. <clears throat> so Lloyd, I've visited your, um, your half-acre homestead from time to time and I've always been intrigued by it, but know very little about it. Uh, what have you built there? Oh, a lot of things. Um, a house, um, pretty much about half the half acre has got built, it got roofs over it. Um, uh, you know, um, if I had, if I had, if I could start over again, I would do it a lot differently, but um, it's got a house and, and our, our production studio and a shop and all around um, the, it'll show up in the slideshow, all around where I've got fences, I put corrugated tin for a garden shed and wood storage and so it's a pretty uh, active a small piece of land. A, hundred, a half acre is a hundred by two hundred. It's a little bit less than half an acre. And you got chickens. Yeah, chickens. I used to have bees and goats as well, but um, as I'll uh, go into here, I, I gave both of those up. Mm -hmm. And but chickens are chickens in a big garden are the things that we have stuck with and can manage. Mm -hmm. So what have you learned from from doing this? What you said if you had it to do over, you'd do it differently. How would you do it if you were advising somebody who was starting fresh on creating a half-acre homestead? Well, I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd study the site pretty well. I, I mean, I would, have, I would have the house where I have my shop now, and I, I would have it facing south, and I'd, um, uh, I'd have a... Um, I'd have, a, I'd have the kitchen open out into the garden where I could cook outside and eat outside and make that access, uh, you know, kind of central. And uh, I would also start out with a solar water heater and a, uh, a wood-fired uh, device that would provide hot water in the winter uh, and have those kind of in the same area. I, I don't think I'm going to ever get another chance to build another house, so... It's all in the in the fantasy realm, mm -hmm. and you know when I was building, it was, you know, uh, it's like I could never really 
take all that much time off. I had to get things built, and so some decisions I made, including building a geodesic dome, which were not great decisions. There's a sign at uh, San Marin Lumber used to say, if you didn't have time to do it right in the first place, how come you have time to do it over? Mm -hmm. um, I remember, if I remember correctly, you wrote an essay that struck me very strongly after you'd done the two dome books, and somewhere you wrote an essay about domes called, if I remember correctly, Smart But Not Wise. Yeah. And uh, tell us about that conversion from your early passion for domes to what came to you to seem like wisdom in uh, small-scale architecture. Well, I, I jumped into domes pretty uh, heavily, and um, uh, after I, I, I built, I, I stuck with domes for about five years, and I worked at a, at a, um, a hippie high school in the Santa Cruz Mountains called Pacific High School, and over a two-year period, we built 17 domes. And we, 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 try, and we, we, we thought that domes were a more efficient way of building and that uh, they used less materials and were, and were more practical. And anyway, at the, getting towards the end of that period, um, uh, uh, we, we, so after the first year at the school, we built about 10 domes. And then after the, by the second year, we had built 17. And they were built out of plywood and aluminum. We used polyurethane foam. Uh, we, we, it was experimental. And um, we, we, we published Dome Book One. I learned how to make books working on the Whole Earth Catalog, and I was able to borrow their equipment. And so we did Dome Book One, and we printed 5,000 copies, and they sold out right away. And then we started working on Dome Book Two, and we did Dome Book Two. And, as I was, and we went to a, 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 a um, an old mountain resort down in the hills uh, east of Santa Barbara for a month. We rented the resort in the off season, and we took all our equipment there with us, including the whole Earth catalog uh, typewriter and and a Polaroid camera, which was what we used in those days. And as we were driving out to the place um, on the road out to this country road, I was looking at these um, farm buildings. Uh, by the side of the road, uh, just simple sheds. And I was thinking, oh, those look really simple. Uh, and we're, you know, we're doing all this stuff. And so, so anyway, I, um, for a lot of reasons, um, I uh, took the dome, I took Dome Book 2 out of print because I didn't want any more domes on my karma. And, um, <laughs> and, I, and I really think that they, they don't make they really don't make, they're not really, I wouldn't advise anybody to build one for a home, maybe for a theater or something. And I ended up, um, and, and that's, and I, so, so we, we had sold 160,000 uh, uh, copies of Dome Book 2. And uh, I don't know if I, I, I don't remember who I've told this to, but what happened, I, I had all these problems with domes in my mind. They weren't working and I didn't like the plastics. Uh, and I was, and, um, and so one day I took some mescaline and I walked up Copper, Copper Mine Creek and uh, it was really a nice day and I was coming back down the creek and I came around a corner and I thought, what if I came around a corner and there was a deteriorating dome in the field here? Wow. Somebody built a dome and it was, the plastic was rotting and, and that would be my fault. And um, so I, I called my agent the next day and said, well, we're taking the book out of print. 
and he said, are you crazy? Um, and so, uh, so we had a, you know, I probably had a quarter of a million people had read that book, and, and domes were sort of the countercultural um, um, method of building for a lot of people. And we did think it was better, and uh, they were better. And uh, so I decided, well, I have a pretty big audience. I had to show that. And I was starting to discover all these other ways of building, including stud frame building and, and rectangles, which, which were like, you know, well, the, the, you know, Bill Beckman used to call it circle madness. And um, so uh, that's, why, that's how Shelter got born. Um, I set off with cameras to, to document things. And, and it, was, it was actually quite exciting after being hemmed in by these strict mathematical uh, rules to discover all these other ways of building, like post and beam and Adobe, and uh, you know, and so I kind of went back a lot, mostly to traditional ways of building. So, what was the question? Um, well, just how you got into this. Yeah. How you yeah. made the transition. Yeah. Didn't Stuart Brand also do a book called something like How Buildings Learn? Yeah. That was kind of on the same theme, wasn't it, in a broad sense that. In other words, he took traditional buildings and showed how over time they were modified and people built them out. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. well, I mean, this book, um, this book is a scrapbook of it was just everything that was going on in the '70s. You know, the the, the '60s happened in the '70s, and you know, they say, <laughs> um, and and so it was just uh, uh, it it really is it's it's all over the place. But we did start out the book with um, uh, primitive construction, and, and we showed the roots of building. And by that time, I'd been to England and to Europe and studied timber framing. And, and uh, again, by having had all that experience with experimental building, when I looked at traditional building, I was just um, uh, I was impressed with how practical it was and how, how much more suitable it was for the kind of life that I wanted to lead. And you know, one of the things I um, discovered about plastics was that um, I kind of came to the conclusion that the more molecular rearrangement that a material has, the less good it feels to be around. And that's why straw bale and adobe and wood and stone feel so good to live with, and, uh, and for me anyway. Um, I, you know, I sometimes, and I, I, uh, I sometimes think that uh, me and my friends and you people and like-minded people, that maybe we're not a very large part of the population. Maybe it's kind of like um, in Fahrenheit 451, <laughs> where they, you know, the people that love books were out there in the country. Because like Dwell Magazine, for example. I mean, Dwell Magazine is a hugely successful magazine, and I don't get it. Um, it it's, it's really looks sterile. There's, there's no color. I can't, I don't know. So I, I don't know how many people feel that way about things, but I mean, that was just one of the things that I felt about uh, materials anyway. So uh, again, coming back to if, if you were a young person and had somehow gotten yourself a half acre of land and were thinking both about the design of a homestead, which you've said a little about, but also about the, the particular kind of construction uh, using traditional materials. What would you advise them in terms of some of the different types of traditional materials that, 
that you've talked about. What, what really makes practical sense for somebody creating a half-acre homestead? Well, I, I usually tell people to look around in the, in the vicinity. A lot, a lot of times the farm buildings will be instructive to look at because they, they have to work. And, and, and the local materials like wood kind of make sense in northern California. And adobe makes sense in the desert where, where you don't have wood and you've got a lot of soil. And uh, when you get farther up north, shakes uh, seem to be, it, it seems to work that way. Um, when I, I went to, um, I went to hitchhiking through Europe with my son Peter when he was about 12, uh, just after I took the dome book out of print. This was a uh, gathering information for shelter, and we were hitchhiking from um, the, uh, we were hitchhiking towards London, and we got picked up by a, a building materials salesman, <laughs> and uh, he. Uh, and so he just started, he, he really, he, he said, the, look at that house over there. Uh, you know why it looks so good in the landscape? Because it's made with the materials from right around it. And, and then I would notice in Ireland, I'd see, a, uh, I'd see a, a, a cottage in a field, and the, um, the, uh, they'd cleared the field of the stones, and they'd use the stones to build the cottage, and then they'd cut the barley, uh, and uh, they used the straw for the roof, and so anyway, it, it all looked um, it all looked good. And for for my purposes, I um, and for around here, I, I like stud framing. Um, but uh, I, if I were to do it again, I would kind of start small with the core, where you have your plumbing core and your heating, and your uh, your bathroom and your kitchen, maybe back to back, and I. You know, unless you had enough time and money, and you, you know, if you have to work while you're building, I'd start small and then plan to add on. And um, I also tell people um, that um, you don't really have to have a piece of land to do stuff for yourself. The, the key in all of our books, I think, is that you do it for yourself and you do it with your hands. And, um, and computers aren't going to uh, build buildings for you. I mean, it's, it's still hammers and saws, and I mean, the, the tools are a lot different now than they were before, but it's still handwork. And when you say you don't have to have land, could you say a little more about how that works? Well, I mean, even if you have a, a city apartment, um, you can fix it up, or you could right. get a loft in the city, or you, right. you know, you, and the, the tiny homes book is about uh, a, a very small home, some of them on wheels. So um, I don't want people to get discouraged because they can't find the piece of land. It, it, I mean, it's when I, my, my lot in Bolinas was um, $6,000 um, in 1971, and the, uh, the uh, water meter was $250, not $250,000. And, uh, and the building permit was $200. And I drew up my own plans, and I was the architect, and I was the engineer. And it was really simple then. Uh, and it's not, so, it's not simple at all anymore. In Marin County, a, a new home, the permits alone are over $50,000. So, um, so I, you know, I mean, so it, young people, um, if, if they're looking for a piece of land, they're going to have to go out into... Uh, less wonderful areas, I think, you know. Um, 
But I, I th you know, and actually, this book here, we we did, we did draw up. Since we had told people about domes, and people kind of understood domes, and since we had a drawing in the dome book of a of a of a dome of the structure of the dome, and people could look at that and they could say, "I get it." So what we did with this book is we drew up five little buildings, and we drew every. The book you're holding up is shelter. Yes, yeah, shelter. So this was 1973. And so we, we uh, and these were tiny homes. And so we drew every stick in the building so that people could look at this and they could say, I, I understand that. And, uh, and, I, and I think I can do that. So let's talk a little about your book, Tiny Homes, Simple Shelter. Um, I, first of all, let me just say, I'm a huge fan of your work. And, you know, I'm not a builder at all, but just uh, in shelter and elsewhere where you just, you know, you've, you've, you've traveled around, looked at these old buildings, and then looked at people who were doing really creative buildings of their own and photographed it. And the, the purely aesthetic power of what you've gathered, just the beauty of it, just makes me fall in love with your vision of, of, uh, of shelter. Uh, but I particularly liked this Tiny Homes book, which, as you say, some of them are on wheels. And, and let me say something about... A, a, a fantasy of mine, which is, um, you know, climate change is with us, right? And we don't know where uh, living conditions are going to be best over long periods of time. We just don't know that. You know, Bolinas is heaven right now at, at a certain level, if you, can, if you happen to have moved here before the prices became impossible. But what is climate change going to bring? So anyway, I can imagine that there will be considerable numbers of people who are living in homes on wheels of one kind or another and able to move to where there's work or to where there's you know, a climate they can live in or whatever, not because I think that's wonderful, but because I think that's true. Uh, and so it seems to me that with this... Uh, you take the concept of homes on wheels and, again, do what you did with shelter before, which is to talk about creative home-built possibility. Mm -hmm. well, well, actually, uh, this book here, there are homes on wheels, but the right. book we're just finishing up now is called Tiny Homes on the Move, mm -hmm. and the subtitle is Wheels and Water. Mm -hmm. And the wheels part of it is uh, vans, uh, pickup trucks with camper shells, house buses, house trucks and trailers, mm -hmm. and the water part of it is sailboats and houseboats mm -hmm. and one tugboat. Uh, so that this, this book is everything is, everything is movable. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes people will do that for a while. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be a temporary thing. And with both of these books, these, the, you know, going in a different direction from these mega houses that have been built over the last 20 years, um, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's just scaling things back uh, is the idea. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so uh, the, the, the one we're doing now is, com you know, is totally on movable, uh, movable, movable homes. You know, just, again, if you just look at the economics of the situation, there are a whole bunch of young people who can't afford to buy land and so on. And then there are going to be a whole bunch of older people who have no savings and have to figure out how to live. And I, I believe that uh, there are going to be a lot of people in moving homes of one kind or another. And 
given that that's the truth, how does one make that as livable as possible? You know, you know, what are the creative possibilities for um, for homes on wheels? It's not the first time in human history that nomads have uh, roamed the face of the earth. Well, the, I think the thing, the, the key is that they'll be small. Right. And, and actually, um, two cities, and I think a third one, I forget what the third one, but Santa Cruz and Portland, Oregon, have ordinances that allow you to build a small building in your backyard for your mother who you don't want to put in a nursing home or your 28-year-old son who moves back in. Uh, and th what they've done is they've, they've uh, relaxed the building codes uh, so that you don't have to have a, a new permit. You've already, got the, uh, you've already got the water and the wiring and the sewage taken care of. So that's one thing that's happening. But I, I think it, the, the thing is that it's, uh, you know, when, I, when I've said to young people is, you know, the idea here and what we wrote in this book is don't, you know, don't get a mortgage and don't pay high rent. I, I've never had a mortgage and it allowed me to, um, I, I, it, it provided a lot of freedom. And because I built as I went, I, you know, I, I, I built it as I, I went along and paid for things as I went along. And because a long, long time ago, I looked at a mortgage and I, I multiplied it out. And this was like in the 60s. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I'm gonna be paying the bank uh, more money in the interest and in the principal and of course, there's inflation, but but I think that's a very, you know, doing it for yourself is really a key. Um, if you can stay away from a bank, you're going to save half right there. And if you can build it yourself, you're going to save half because a building is typically roughly 50% materials and 50% labor. So you end up with 25% of the cost. Yeah, um, yeah. To do it yourself. Yeah, and you kind of get what you want. Um, and, and also I tell people sometimes like the way I got started was uh, I had this guy Bob that was helping me I, I, in 1961 or so I started building in Mill Valley and we were ready to start and I said well what do we do and he picked up a shovel and he started digging the trench and so it was like start just start and your momentum will carry you along and um, you'll you'll figure it out as you go along, and it's you know it's doing it yourself is something that most people can do. What you'll see in the slideshow is sort of my background in in building the house I built in Mill Valley, and then I did build kind of more of a real homestead in Big Sur. In about sixty, I lived in Big Sur for three years, and um, as I was thinking about doing this uh, over the last week. Uh, for, for the first time, I looked back at the 70s and what we did in town here, and I sort of saw it um, comprehensively. And I thought, wow, you know, we were doing all this stuff 40 years ago here. And so I've really been having fun this week thinking about uh, what happened when I moved to town and um, where we've gone and how far we've come. I got here in 1971. Uh, just as the moratorium was uh, going into effect. And um, what, uh, the, the, I, I mentioned how, how the, I, me I remember Joanne's house was for sale uh, down the block from me and it was $17,000. Just to say the moratorium was a water moratorium yeah. that 
stopped, stopped uh, a lot of building. Building permits, yeah. yeah. Right. But anyway, I thought $17,000, that's a lot of money for a house. I think I can build something cheaper than that. And so, anyway, what, what happened was um, in the first couple of years I was here, I, I, I made some notes about all the guys that were building in town here. Uh, Bill Nyman, Orville Shell, Rodney, um, uh, Minor Wilson, Rob Rich, Tim uh, Saltz, Kevin Hicks, the Gaspers brothers. Uh, there were about, I could count about 30 people that were building houses here in the 70s. And then you, and then you had Callagy Jones, who was a contractor. He built quite a few houses. He had kind of a crew, including Paul Mann and Peter Harris that came from Berkeley. And then you had Paradise Valley. So there was a really a lot of uh, maybe 50 houses or so or more that were being built at that time. And then, in, and so for, for building materials, uh, I, for building materials, I got my building materials uh, mostly at Treasure Island where they were tearing down the Navy barracks. Um, and it was really good quality lumber. And, um, and then there was also, uh, we also um, got, uh, a bunch of us got material up in Petaluma we tore down buildings, uh, and we we met a guy up there that was in his 80s. We called Captain Bill, and he was a demolition uh, expert. And we bought windows and doors from him, and um, and I, I split shakes for uh, at that time I was building a dome, and uh, uh, I got the shakes uh, from redwood logs on the beach. Um, redwood logs would get away from the loggers in those years because it wasn't as precious as it is now, and so there would be redwood logs down at Agate Beach. So I'd go down there in a wetsuit and uh, lever the a log into the water at a high tide and then sit on it with a kayak paddle and paddle it over to the where I could get my truck down. And then I'd come back at low tide and cut up the, uh, the uh, log into bolts and throw them in the truck and take them home and split them. So, uh, so we were all, I mean, we were doing all these sort of uh, green things, but we didn't think of them as green. It was just a, a sensible and, you know, useful way to do things. Uh, there was Barry's Sawmill, which was up in Casadero, and a lot of Callagy's houses were built with redwood, second-growth redwood from Barry's Sawmill, um, which tended to have termite um, vulnerability. And uh, Cleveland Wreckers was a big wrecking yard in San Francisco, and one of the first things I did when I quit building domes, uh, I got a pickup truck and I started going around to debris boxes in San Francisco. And uh, again, early 70s, they, they, people were throwing out, you know, uh, uh, beautiful, you know, they were putting in sliding glass and th throwing out these wooden doors with nine lights. And, and so, um, so, a lot, I, my, so anyway, my house is, is mostly uh, used material. Uh, Tom Tiller was the building inspector uh, then, and he, as you know, now I guess uh, he was really nice to work with. And the uh, the uh, uh, Herb Wimmer was the um, chief building inspector in Marin County, and he was a good guy. And um, they let you draw your own plans. And uh, there were several boats being built in Bolinas then. Uh, there was at least one airplane that got built here. You're listening to a conversation with Lloyd Kahn and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. Anyway, about in, by the mid-70s, there were a number of us that were starting to um, raise food. 
uh, fruit, vegetables, um, um, and uh, a number of us had dairy animals and bees and chickens. And so we, um, uh, I can think of, there were four or five couples, including Leslie and I, that we, and, so, and we had a food club. Um, it was before the people store, and we would buy food maybe every month or two. We'd go into the city to veritable vegetables and, uh, and come back, and, and people would order and divide up uh, the food. Uh, we had a farmer's market uh, in front of the Bee Pud on Saturday mornings. The Bee Pud being the water district. The water district. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, Richard and Danny were a couple of fishermen. And they would, uh, they would bring fish in the back of a pickup truck and drive through town and sell fish. Um, uh, uh, or Orville Shell and Bill Nyman, who l later founded the, um, the, the, the beef operation, at that time they weren't, they, at that time they, they, they hadn't started that yet. They, they called their ranch the Cash's King Ranch. Um, war, um, uh, Michael Gaspers and Jack McClellan and I rented uh, 10 acres on the, actually Mike and I rented 10 acres on the, on the sewer farm to do some small scale farming. And we planted some oats and vetch for hay and some permanent pasture. And I tried out different grains. So all of us, we were, we were, we were kind of having to go back and learn these skills that had been lost by our parents maybe, how to make cheese and how to raise chickens and how to do all these kind of, um, you know, agricultural things. Warren Weber was farming with horses at the time. And um, I don't know if he, I haven't, I should ask him if he remembers this, but um, so Mike and I had, uh, uh, we had, uh, we rented a tractor in Petaluma and we brought it over here so we used it to, to plow our land on the sewer farm. And so uh, we, we, we disked the land and we had to plant the seeds. And Warren had a drill, which is a, a machine you, you pull behind a tractor or horses that, that drills the seed into the ground. So I made a deal with him that he would drill our seeds in exchange for me coming down and doing some tractor work for him. So he came up and we did the seeds and the horses. And then next day I went down there and uh, he told me where he wanted it plowed, and he watched what I did, and I pulled the three-point hitch, and the disc went down into the ground. Just, and I'd say within a month, the horses were gone, um, and he, he went to tractors. And I, I think a lot of things that we did back then, we tried to do things the old-fashioned and romantic way, and some, you know, you, you had to sort of find the right balance. And maybe one of the big things that I learned doing all this was that uh, you're never going to be self-sufficient. You know, self-sufficiency is a direction. And you shouldn't give up because you can't be totally self-sufficient. But you should just do as much of it as you can. And um, so, um, so but, but anyway, we, ha we had to rediscover how to do these things. There was a, a, an old guy in town named Arnold uh, Brost who had, been, had worked at Rancho Bolinas, which was a dairy farm, uh, before I got here. I don't know when they closed down, maybe in the 60s or 50s or something. And he had lived in Germany. He actually had grown up in Romania. And Mike, Michael Gaspers knew him, and I got to know Arnold, and he knew how to do all these things. He knew how to make wine, 
Uh, he was a beekeeper. And we just hung around with Arnold and learned a lot of things from him. Uh, Lydia and Alfred Teixeira uh, were the, the uh, branch of the Teixeira family that owned the Francisco Mesa. And by that time, they had retired, and Alfred was a farmer. And Lydia, I don't know, probably a bunch of you knew Lydia, but she was a very, very uh, wonderful, interesting, bright, witty person who had delivered milk in town when she was young. And um, at the same time we were studying Rodale, I brought along a copy of what was the Bible from a lot of people in those days, and this is all soiled, damaged, and how to grow vegetables and fruits by the organic method by Mr. Rodale. And this was before Rodale became such a big, uh, um, you know, uh, operation. Uh, and uh, uh, at the same time, there was Alan Chadwick, who was um, a, a person who uh, started the farm, which is the, um, the uh, um, down at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, kind of, a, he was a biodynamic gardener. And so we were, we were, you know, learning, and we have, I, I just looked today, I probably got books of, uh, in the bookshelf, maybe this long, of books on biodynamic farming and gardening. So anyway, we were, we were learning all this stuff and doing all this stuff. Um, uh, um, at that time, there was Smiley's, Scowley's, and Snarley's. <laughs> Smiley's was the bar. Scowley's was a... Um, a uh, little restaurant across the street run by the Fontan brothers, and Snarley's was where the Coast Cafe is now. It was kind of a um, um, sort of a delicatessen. Uh, and there were about, there were 250 kids in the school then. Uh, Michael Rafferty had started the Hearsay News. And then just a couple of other things. Um, uh, so in keeping with all those sort of uh, the other thing I, I just have to intervene. Yeah. Michael Rafferty's in the audience. And I know. Started the hearsay news from behind the butcher counter at the Bellino store and worked at Commonweal for many, many years. <laughs> Heffelberger. Remember Heffelberger? Heffelberger. Bobby Heffelfinger yeah. raised the beef and, and right. uh, I ground it up and called right. Heffelberger. <laughs> <laughs> well, you used to write the hearsay at Scowley's, right? Yeah. Didn't you sit in there and. Well, he also started the Fault Line Institute, and he also started the, uh, the, what became KWMR. And started his, his bookstore. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I've often argued that... that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, just one other thing. We got a grant for $5,000 from the Whole Earth Catalog in probably 1975, and we, uh, we used it to... Uh, we built uh, solar water heaters at the school, and uh, Mike Gaspers did uh, some solar water heaters out at his place. John Wells was a guy that I, a friend of mine, who uh, came out here in the winter from the East Coast, and he did a number of things, including a, a sail windmill uh, at Bob and Bob Scott's place. And um, and then Mark Mazer, who was an electrician, his scheme was to uh, 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 heat uh, scowlies with solar heated water. And he built a big collector in the backyard there. And so we did quite a few things. Um, I, actually, I want to just mention what Bob, Scott, and Sabina had on their half acre of land at one time. They had chickens, ducks, geese. They had a horse, they had a cow, they had a pig, 
and they had a couple of sheep, and they raised an incredible amount of food. I mean, I, I think it was, it was so, it was, you know, it was pretty difficult, and it maybe wasn't sustainable, but that was just, uh, and that was just right in the, you know, in the middle of the mesa. And they used to serve wonderful dinners on planks <laughs> on the, yeah. in the middle of their yard. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Um, so um, I, anyway, through all those, uh, you know, probably starting in the 60s, um, uh, building and having gardens, I, uh, I, I, I discovered tools uh, to uh, use in, uh, in doing all that stuff. And a year or so ago, I thought, well, I'm going to put together a list of the tools that I have found to be useful and that I still think are useful, and, and not the obvious ones, but ones that are maybe a little unusual. And so that's the, um, the basis of this, uh, of this uh, presentation I'm doing here. Anyway, I just thought I would, I, I was just uh, kind of amused and pleased to think about all the stuff that we were doing then. And then, oh, the other thing is, we, we did three publications in those years. I'll pass these around. Pamphlet number one, um, uh, pamph pamphlet number one, uh, pamphlet number two. Uh, this, this here is uh, the Teixeira Ranch up in, uh, before they moved to Bolinas. Uh, the, the parents of uh, Jesse and Alfred. Uh, and what we did is we went around and interviewed the farmers around here. I interviewed um, Boyd Stewart and um, um, uh, Jose Silva's mom, who had grown up here on the White Ranch, which was over at Stinson Beach. And so in these little things, we did them inexpensively, and they were printed on the Hearsay Press by Mickey... Uh, Cummings. Yeah, Mickey Cummings. And... Um, and, and, and in this one here, we, we tallied how much food was being raised in Bolinas and how you could do ponds in Bolinas. And then we got around to, finally, we did this one here. This was more ambitious. Called um, local energy. Local energy. And, and it was, again, it was the animals and the, um, the agriculture and the natural plants. And Peter Warshaw worked on it. And you worked on it, Michael, and this thing here, yeah. And... Um, and so we, these were all things that we did then. And one of the things that I thought of uh, recently when I was thinking about all this was, um, and I thought about this looking at the fields when you buy the school and what the uh, merchants are doing there and what the, uh, Dennis is doing out in the valley, is that there's a lot of food being produced in Bolinas right now. And, and there's a lot of fish coming into Bolinas. And it actually looks like an incredible crab season. Um, they're they're out there this year, uh, but since then, I mean, we 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 found I found that I couldn't um, I wanted to actually make a living farming, and um, I really couldn't do it uh, back then because people wouldn't pay for organic food. I was we were selling eggs for a dollar a dozen, goat's milk for a dollar a quart, and honey for a dollar a pound, and. You just, you just couldn't make it. Um, nowadays, it's quite different. Um, the, the, the organic food section of the co-op in um, Corte de Madera was this little, you know, little uh, side uh, building, and uh, there'd be some old zucchini, and, you know, and, and in the early 60s, there, there, was, um, there was just a couple of places in San Francisco where you could get organic, um, organic produce. 
It was actually, the, the precursor of Whole Foods was a, a guy named Fred Rowey, who built his first, um, uh, who, who set up his first uh, organic natural foods market in Palo Alto in 1966 or something. And so anyway, it's, it's really changed quite a bit now uh, to where, you know, people can get, people will pay for, for high quality food. But in those days, so I, I, I kind of gave up on farming. I, I got rid of the goats. Go, uh, dairy animals are, are really um, time consuming and, and demanding. Uh, they have to be milked uh, twice a day, whether it's raining or whether it's Christmas or whether you're sick or, uh, and, and um, so I gave up on the goats and then I gave up on the bees, um, uh, and, but I didn't give up on the chickens. Why'd you give up on the bees? It was just, it, it, um, it, it wasn't that it was always too much work, but when you had to tend to the bees, you had to tend to them. Okay. And, um, and I really was getting back into publishing at the time. Uh, I sort of thought that when, when I did Shelter, and then uh, in this was 73, and then in 1978 we did Shelter 2, and I sort of thought that I was going to get out of the publishing business then and do some farming, and that didn't work out. And I discovered a homemade book called Stretching, and um, which changed my life forever. And I, so I got back into publishing, and, and the people who did the Stretching book we rented them the Sharon house, which was the house down at the beach, and they moved to town here for three months, and we redid the stretching book. So I kind of gave up the more intensive farming and, and got back into, um, into, uh, into publishing. And so now we're, you know, we, we kind of, you kind of, it's like walking a tightrope. You're trying to find the balance between going out there to work and doing what you can at home. Um, so your 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 publishing work is mostly done from home. Yeah, yeah all these are well, they're 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 get, we get them ready for the printers right. at home, right. and it's it's totally transformed since the well. Actually, you know, we used to put books together by hand, and when the Macintosh came out, Michael Rafferty was working with me, and he jumped right into the Macintosh, and so he got a Macintosh, and so he's over there in the office, and he's working on the Macintosh, and I'm over here with. Exacto knife and scissors and scotch tape, and I just kept saying, "Oh no, I, you know, I'm not gonna, you know." And so, well, obviously, things changed. <laughs> I, I'll never forget. I laid out a page, and and, and you you went up there with this piece of scotch tape with a rule on it, and you said, "That ruler's crooked." Do <laughs> 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 you remember that? <laughs> no, I, yeah. The computer made a straight line, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So all, all that, all that changed, and um, and so we do make we do make the books at home, uh, and we so we actually get everything ready. What we used to do is we used to prepare. Uh, each page would go on a board, and the 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 the, the type would get was done on an IBM composer, which was a $10,000 typewriter, uh, direct impression, a font. When you wanted to change from Roman to italic, you changed the font. And then that was waxed down, and the photos were done with this process uh, where we had to either make a half tone uh, or have the printers do it. So anyway, after months and months, we would get 
like this book, we'd get it ready and it would all be in a, in a box. And then I would FedEx it. No, no, actually this one I took into San Francisco. But later on when we were printing back east, we would FedEx the, this box of, of, which was irreplaceable. If anything happened to it, that was it. Well now, uh, we fed, FedEx it to the printers. Now we, um, we send it, we, send, we get the book done and we send it via the, we don't even, we used to send uh, disks or the hard drives, now we just do it on the internet. So uh, this book here went on the internet to the printers in Hong Kong. Um, You're talking about the tiny, tiny homes. homes, yeah. And so it it, it does um, it, it it works you know it's, it works okay to do that. So I'm able to work from home. My commute is about a hundred feet. <laughs> so let's look at some of your images. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is me and my dad when I was 12 years old. We built a house up in Calusa. Uh, California, and um, it was a concrete block house, and we'd go up and work on weekends and holidays, <clears throat> and um, it had a concrete slab floor, and my job was shoveling uh, sand and cement into the concrete mixer. Um, uh, so that's, that's where I got a feeling for building. Um, this is the first place I built in Mill Valley. This is a, we called it a sod roof then. It's now called a living roof. And um, it was a, a carport that I converted to a studio. And, um, we, uh, and, I, and I just used hand tools at the time. A friend of mine was an architect and he designed it. And so I had, uh, on the roof, I had uh, three layers of tar and gravel and then maybe a couple of layers of gravel on top of that and then three or four inches of soil. And then we planted, uh, uh, I think, chamomile on top of it. Um, this is uh, the house that I built. Uh, these are shakes that I made. And um, the house was designed by this friend of mine. And it was way more ambitious than I would do now. I would have I done something much more simple now. But uh, I was sort of um, uh, influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright and, uh, and also Bernard Maybeck, who was... Uh, a wonderful, and Julia Morgan, who were Bay Area architects. Um, uh, then, skipping, uh, moving right along, this is the house I built in Big Sur uh, uh, in uh, 1967. Uh, it was, th this was uh, two miles north of Esalen, and the house was totally used material, and the shakes, uh, I got I used to get shakes. I'd find logs in the woods that the loggers had left behind because they were too short. And so I'd uh, cut them up and split them and make them into shakes. So I, I really kind of did do a homestead, more of a real homestead in Big Sur. Uh, the people who owned this land lived up in the top of the hill. And, um, and actually I made a deal with them where <clears throat> we would build our house on their land. They would retain the land. Uh, and we would get to live there in exchange for running their mail-order book business when they traveled. And so it worked out pretty well. Um, uh, uh, this was the inside of the house. Um, uh, the, um, actually, the, the roof deck and the floor were Monterey Pine from Carmel Valley, and everything else was from Cleveland Wreckers, except the posts were... Uh, eight by 12 uh, railroad ties from mm. double track railroad ties. And, and so I, uh, I developed a water 
uh, system from 600 feet up from a spring and uh, cleared about an acre of land, terraced uh, land there for farming. And I could go down through the, I cut a trail down the canyon to the beach, I could go down and get abalone. And so, you know, we were kind of heading in the direction of self-sufficiency then. Um, Pardon? I was asking what the shakes were made from. The what was? The shakes. shakes. The shakes were redwood, yeah. For shakes, you need, uh, you need redwood or cedar mostly, or there's a type of pine that grows, I think, back east. That's, you need straight grain. We tried, we tried a lot of things here in the 70s. One of them was I tried using eucalyptus. I, I tried making shingles and shakes out of eucalyptus. Uh, that didn't work too well. Um, and... Um, <laughs> Stretchware. Um, uh, so um, uh, here is. Um, oh yeah, this is the house in Big Sur. Oops. Okay. Um, okay. Then I started building domes in Big Sur. And um, Buckminster Fuller came to Esalen, and uh, uh, three of us were building a very large timbered house in Big Sur for a we very wealthy family. Uh, and we were kind of struggling with these huge beams, and Buck Bucky Fuller came to Esalen and talked about lightweight ethereal buildings, mm -hmm. and we were just, you know, knocked out. And um, after that weekend, we all started building domes, and I, so I started building domes in Big Sur. And um, I don't know if I would get into this. Okay, um, there was going to be a festival in San Francisco called the Wild West Festival. It was going to be a rock and roll festival in Golden Gate Park. And um, my sort of partner at the time, Jay Baldwin, and I got commissioned to build a, a, a dome for the festival. It was going to be like an 80-foot dome built out of pipe that you could film from and hang things from. It was gonna be in a glen in the park. Anyway, the Wild West Festival never happened hmm. um, because they were afraid of, there was getting to be violent things happening. And um, uh, so uh, one day I met these people from a place called Pacific High School in the, that, and they had 40 acres in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And I was coming back from the Wild West Festival and uh, uh, and, and I had a model, a dome model in the, in the Volkswagen van, and they saw that, and they were just about ready to uh, build some buildings on their campus there, and so they saw the dome. So I got hired to, and I moved to the Santa Cruz Mountains uh, to start a building program of geodesic domes for the kids would build the domes that they would live in. And so that's what we did. And... Um, uh, and this is my dome, and that's me standing in the center there. We did a lot of kind of trippy things with the windows. Uh, and um, I stayed at that place for two years, and we built, I think I said, 17 domes. Um, the craftsmanship was not very good uh, with 15-year-old kids. And um, the, school, uh, the school just, it, it ended up with too many people there, so I, I ended up uh, uh, moving to Bolinas. But I wanted to build one more dome, and I wanted to build a dome myself that I, uh, and so I did. I built a dome here, and uh, that's Billy Cummings up there on top. 
um, that was, he, he didn't, he, he, he hadn't done any building before. <clears throat> and he just, he said, I'll work for free. And so uh, that, that was, the siding there was from Treasure Island, from subflooring from Treasure Island Navy Barracks. And they're splitting the shakes. It's one of the nicest things to do is split shakes. Um, <clears throat> there's the dome from the outside. Um, it worked. I mean, it was, it was a pretty dome. It didn't leak. Um, but for a number, let's see, for a number of reasons, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I tore it down um, and I, I sold it to uh, Rex Rathbun, who was the um, uh, kind of the foreman out at the uh, uh, Rancho Bolinas. And he took it up north when he moved up there. And then I built this house here this house you see here. And it was, it was such a joy to go back to building a, a, with rectangles. Um, one of the things about domes, I'll just tell you a couple of things about them. Domes are circular and uh, building materials are rectangular. Bricks, wood, uh, refrigerators, beds, chests of drawers are all rectangular. And you start trying to put them into a round um, uh, floor plan. Anything that, when, that you add on to a dome inside is multiple angles to deal with. Um, if you want to put another, if you want to add a room to a rectangle, you just build a roof off the wall of the rectangle. But if you want to add on to a dome, you've got all these different facets to deal with. Anyway, I eventually did a publication called Refried Domes. <laughs> and, um, you know, here's all the reasons that I do not recommend that you build domes. Um, so uh, here's the place in town. Actually, we just put, uh, Billy D Cummings did this. We got, a friend of mine split these shakes up in British Columbia from driftwood. Mm. So the tower, the, the shakes uh, actually wore out after about 30 years, mm. 35 years. So here's the inside of the house. Uh, that's a, um, a, uh, a soapstone stove from Vermont Castings, which we've had for, which I remember Bob Scott helped us struggle to get the thing in. Um, uh, there's another angle. Okay, now we're getting into the tools. This is a little fan that goes on the stove that um, circulates the warm air. It just spins by the heat. This is, um, you know, actually, this isn't showing the whole picture here. I wonder if this is, well, anyway, this is, this is a copper pipe and it's got a wooden knob on the end for blowing uh, the fire. This, this is. Um, I don't, I'll keep going here. I, I, I think we're getting cropped here somehow. This is a living room. Um, this is a room I added on later on after um, the building inspector was out of there. Uh, and this room is just on piers. Um, there's no continuous foundation, and under each pier, I put maybe a sack of ready mix concrete, and um, the roof is. Uh, uh, it's an 18-foot span on the roof. If you know anything about building, they're, they're two-by-sixes that are two feet on centers, which is really a long way, and it's completely um, unacceptable to the building codes. And the roof is even a little bit flexible, but it works fine. And these are all, that window there on the left I got from Greg Hewlett for $15. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of windows in this room. Um, this is a table made out of... Um, recycled um, Douglas fir lumber. 
And actually, that addition there, Michael Gaspers and Franz um, Skinner uh, built that. My ha I'm okay at um, getting a house. Uh, I, I really like the foundation work and getting it framed. Uh, but once it's framed and the roof is on, then I'm, I'm, I'm not good at finishing. And so over the years, I've had people like Mike and Franz come in and redo things. And they redid this little room here. Uh, and uh, Lou Lewandowski, who works with me now, he rebuilt the bathroom. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Um, okay, another, a tool that I wish I'd got years ago. That costs about $30. It's just great to have around the house. Mm -hmm. Here's the, the kitchen. Uh, I got that sink for um, $100 at a, a used lumber yard in San Francisco. And what I like about it is that it drains the drain board. Uh, drain into the sink instead of having a lip around the sink, which is always tends to rot out. Um, there's just showing um, the stove and the hanging utensils. Uh, copper, copper frying pans are expensive and they're going to last for lifetimes and totally worth it. Um, we just, uh, I just put nails up here to hang uh, our things from, uh, uh, like that. Somebody from Dwell Magazine commented on how crude that was. Um, uh, you, know. you said thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, this is, Amleto gave me this. This is a um, Amleto who makes pizza downtown. This is, you put this under the pizza on a stone in the oven and it lets air circulate underneath it. Um, uh, this is the kitchen. Um, this is a five-gallon hot water heater underneath the sink, which I don't like the idea, electric. I don't like electric hot water, but it's very small, and um, you get instant hot water that way instead of having the hot water come from another part of the house. I, I had a, uh, a dishwasher when we had goats, uh, and, um, but over the years, I... I found that we were having to practically wash the dishes before we put them in the dishwasher. So I took it out, and so I've got a system of washing dishes now that's really pretty good. That's a cork board up above the sink with uh, wine corks. And this is something that Lou built um, where um, we do the dishes in a Rubbermaid tub in the sink, uh, in a very small amount of water, and then stack them next to it and rinse them off and then put them in the, in the rack up here. Uh, and so then that's where they stay. Uh, this is a spatula. That is, um, I, I, there are people who, who don't have these things. I don't know how they, you know, to get things, to get things clean. Um, this, is the, this is the compost bucket for the chickens. Um, this is the compost bucket for the compost pile. Stuff that the chickens won't eat, like bones and avocado pits and uh, liquids and things like that. You're listening to a conversation with Lloyd Kahn and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. Uh, you know, when I go to the city, uh, if I stay in the city for a while and I have to throw any food into the garbage in the city, it just feels wrong. Um, uh, because, like, for over 40 years, every scrap of food that we've had is in the soil, you know, and, and you know, if, if not through the chickens, then in the compost piles. Uh, this is... Um, a shaker that we use for um, baking soda, which is a, a, a um, we couldn't do without it 
in the, in the kitchen. I don't know if you know baking soda, but it, it makes glasses, glasses, glass sparkle. It's, it it, 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 it uh, cuts down odors in the refrigerator. And we use it like w w the way you would use Comet. And there's baking soda. We buy it in uh, five gallon, <laughs> five pound. Uh, this is a seventh generation, a really good uh, dishwashing detergent that um, I get it from Amazon uh, that we put in the garden. You know, you can put in the garden. It's biodegradable. Uh, here's the pantry. Um, um, uh, and th this, this was all stuff that we did back in the 70s, kind of, you know, um, it's, there seemed to be more time in the 70s to do things, and, uh, and, it was, and it was really cheap to live back then. I mean, Leslie and I were living, my paycheck was $250 a month back then, and um, I don't know, there just isn't, but we, we it, it was, I, I'm glad that we had that amount of time then to fiddle around and to get all these things together. Um, these are the bins that we keep grain in. This is um, uh, the grain grinder. Um, oh yeah, I have um, on our website, we have um, links to each one of these tools. What is your website? Uh, well, I've got cards here. I know, Sh but for the Shelterpub.com. Shelter what? Shelterpub. 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 Com. But I've got cards here that you can pick up and, and you can use a QR code. You can go to the website, so if you're interested in any of these tools, you can look them up and find out where to get them. But anyway, this is a really good gr uh, grain grinder. We had a grain grinder, a stone grain grinder for 30 years and it finally burned out and I couldn't find another stone one. Mm. So I got this one and it's got steel cutters in it, but it just zips through things and where I couldn't grind oats in the other one, it's got this, you know. So we, we grind um, a, a brown rice for cream of rice for breakfast uh, or wheat, uh, cream of wheat, and just grind the, grind the, you know, Lundberg Brothers organic rice and make cream of rice with it. It's really simple. And Leslie uses it for bread, for, and we buy um, wheat in 50-pound 50 50 bags. This is a, um, a little Italian... Uh, oatmeal mill. Mm -hmm. You pour oat groats into the top and turn it, and it, and it flat, uh, smashes them down and makes them into oatmeal. And I think that that makes a real difference if you if you go from the fresh grain to the to the uh, cooking process in the in the same you know day. Uh, this is a um, KitchenAid, which Leslie made bread by hand for years and years, and finally she got this, and so it, it just is so much. It's, it, this is a tool that was designed. I don't know, like in the 40s or 50s, and it's still the same design for kneading bread, among other things. This is a, a distiller, a solar, a, a, an electric distiller in the pantry. Um, I've always distilled water um, uh, around here. Um, this is the, the, stiller, the distiller here. Um, this is a Weber barbecue that we cook every, all meat and fish on outside gas barbecue. This is a, a refillable sparker starter. It, it, um, I really didn't like throwing those things out before so that you, you can refill these. And we're, we're, unfortunately, we're missing the right side of this, but this is a little Italian uh, espresso machine. Um, I got this for $250 in San Rafael. And uh, you look these things up on the web now, they're $2,500. 
this is an electric uh, kettle. Again, I don't really like using electric for heat, but this is so efficient, and it, and it just heats uh, water for tea or coffee just immediately. Um, stainless steel pots. We were using these this week for cooking crabs or for you know canning or anything big. Um, this is a, 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 a made in Poland uh, a crock that I use for making sauerkraut. It's got a, a water seal around the top, um, and it's got stones in it. And I, I was amazed to learn that sauerkraut, all, all sauerkraut is, is cabbage and salt. That's just it. And you put it in there and put some stones on top, and it, and it sits on the pantry floor, and it's good for four or five months. This is um, something really handy for poultry, for cutting up uh, chicken or whatever. Um, these are... Uh, three knives that I found out about through Cool Tools, which I really recommend that you check out. Um, cool Tools is a blog run by Kevin Kelly, and it's basically the electronic whole earth catalog. And, um, and, he, and actually, after 10 years, he's finally done a book, uh, which is just about to come out with about over 1,000 tools in it. And I found a lot from Cool Tools, including these knives, which were about $25 and were made in Vietnam. And um, they, they're the, 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 you know, that's the, that's the chopping knife that we use and the little knife that I use all the time. This is a sharpening device. I won't, if, I don't remember the names of these things, but you can look them up easily for sharpening knives really quickly. Um, this is a, a great, for, I make fresh ginger tea every morning. Uh, this is um, a thing for checking the temperature of meat. I got this Blendtec blender um, in the last year, and it's, it's uh, the Blendtec blender and the Vitamix are two equally wonderful blenders. It's, it's, um, and uh, I make green smoothies with it. Um, it's not like a normal blender. It's really powerful. You can even grind grain in it and do all kinds of things with it. Um, this is a tool that I found for um, prickly pear, for taking the prickles off the nopales. Uh, that some guy invented. I, there's a, I don't know if you know, but over by the school, by the uh, white barn over there by the school, there's a gigantic prickly pear back in there. And, um, uh, and so I kind of got into getting the, the fruits and, the, and the, the, the paddles, the nopales. And this tool takes the, the uh, stickers off the, the paddles. This is a chicken coop. Uh, Billy Cummings built this. Uh, a year or more ago. I probably have built five chicken coops and every one of them was funky. And um, this time we poured a concrete floor and we buttoned it up really tight and rats don't get in and it's something I should have done in the first place. And I'm kind of, after all these years, back to a living roof here. I tell you one thing about a living roof is that they are expensive and they're very time consuming and I don't think I would do this again if I had it to do over again. I think they'll last forever, pretty much. Um, I mean, one thing is you've got to really be sure that it's waterproof underneath it because if you get a leak, that's a lot of soil to move. So here, this shows the chicken coop and the yard, which is completely closed in, uh, top and the sides and wire going down into the ground for digging critters like skunks and possums and the wire on the top for the red-shouldered hawk who lives over in the uh, eucalyptus trees across on Jerry's property. 
and got five of our chickens one year. Uh, so the chickens, we've gone to bantam chickens, and um, I saw these birds, these are called sea brights. Uh, the, these are golden sea brights, and the ones on the right are silver sea brights, and they're, they're, they're about half the size of a normal chicken, and I just fell in love with them. They're so beautiful, um, and the, their eggs are about um, half the size of a normal egg, and I, I kind of think that the bantams are more efficient with food, the food-to-egg uh, formula than regular chickens, and so we've completely converted to bantams. Uh, here's the nests that you open up the uh, door from the, uh, from the other side of the, of the chicken coop. There's some eggs. There's a chicken waterer, it's an automatic waterer. It fills up kind of like the way the toilet flushes. Uh, the favor if you have chickens, get them some of these dried meal worms because they are crazy. For They'll follow you around. If you want to get chickens to go anywhere, you just throw some meal worms there. Um, this is a net that I have for capturing chickens. <laughs> well, you know, you get, when, you, when you get chickens, um, especially if you get bantams, they can't sex them. So the, you get what's called straight run. That means if you get 30 chickens, half of them are going to be male. Um, if you get regular chickens, you can get pullets, so you don't have to deal with the males. So you get 30 chickens, you've got 15 males. You can't have 15 male chickens, so you're going to have to kill them or you're going to have to give them away, we eat them. And so anyway, I catch them with this. Um, Leslie makes these things from uh, bar ale um, feed bags. This is a crab trap, a lightweight crab trap. This is a crab snare. They're starting to use these things around here. I saw a guy down there this morning with three rods with casting these out. And, and it, by the way, it's going to be a huge crab year, it looks like. Here's Billy holding a pretty big crab. Um, these are three tools I use. The, on the, the, the yellow thing there is an eel pole. It's a collapsible eel pole, so it's not so um, difficult to carry it as it is a 20-foot piece of bamboo down to the beach. And then the middle one is a, is a fork for clamming. Hmm. Unfortunately, there are no clams left on the patch. Um, Actually, Jeremy told me this morning that they, they suffocated or something, that the, that the uh, you know, the patch is the reef that you look out at at Surfer's Perch. And for, I don't know, like 100 years, people have been digging clams there. But in the last three or four years, they're gone. And then that other shovel there is for digging clams in the mud. So why are they gone? Uh, well, I, 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 Jeremy thinks that because the silt washed down and they suffocated. I get it. And they came to the top. That's um, squirrel. Uh, squirrel is really good. There's a bluegrass song, um, Why Would Anybody Eat Beef When They Can Have Squirrel? <laughs> this is the greenhouse. Uh, Tom Brown uh, put the greenhouse together, um, and it's uh, all used windows that my brother was throwing out these windows hmm. from his house. Tom Brown built that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom's a really good carpenter, very meticulous. Um, uh, you, we, we have some of these uh, containers around for rainwater. Uh, this is the greenhouse inside. The, the wall of the greenhouse is, is adobe. We dug a well in uh, 1980. Bill Teixeira did it with a backhoe. Uh, not a deep well, but a shallow, like a 15-foot. You dig a 15-foot hole in the ground, 
and then you put a pipe in the middle of it with holes in it and then backfill it with uh, gravel and then the water trickles in then you have a pipe going down into that pipe that pulls the water up so all the soil that we dug out I made these bricks with a thing called a sinvaram which is a kind of a third world tool with a, a compression lever on it and you use one part cement and 12 parts of soil so that's the the wall of the greenhouse is, is with those things just using, um, I learned a lot from the guys in British Columbia of using stuff you find on the beach for various things. This is a great watering can. Leslie figured this out herself. Um, she uh, did these raised beds. So what she did is she laid quarter inch mesh on the ground and just stacked blocks around the perimeter of the mesh. So that's gopher proof right there. And then filled up the uh, filled it up with soil and then plant. you can plant strawberries inside the bricks and it works really great. These are my compost bins. I've got three of them. They're five by five and I've got sliding boards in the front. Um, compost really should be turned more often than I do. Um, uh, but uh, I put it, I kind of turn it when it's in there and then at a certain stage when it builds up high enough, then I'll turn it into the next bin. Mm -hmm. And I've got worms in there. And I've, all over the years, I've, I've kind of gotten it down to where um, I've gotten it pretty, I've learned how to keep the temperature high. And so the end product is wonderful soil that you can use as compost in the garden. Then um, a lot of the, um, all the fences, most of the, a lot of the fences around the property, I've just put used tin to make a roof for garden tools uh, and wood, um, wood storage. Um, there's some of my favorite tools. That tool on the right there was a hoe that I found um, in a plantation in Louisiana. Um, when I went there to do something at Tulane and I drove out and was taking pictures and this was old plantation and the, this was behind a slave's quarters. And that hoe, I mean, whoever used that hoe was a pretty strong guy because it's really big. And then the other thing there next to it is a hula hoe, mm. which is a really nice garden tool, kind of an unusual one for um, uh, getting weeds out. Um, I've gone to... Um, Plastic wheelbarrows, they're way better than the metal. The metal are always gonna rot out on you. Uh, these are gloves that Leslie discovered. They're inexpensive and you can actually um, do kind of dexterous things with these, you know, save your hands from the soil. Uh, it was a good year. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm often surprised at people that don't know about vaporizers. I mean, you know, old school people, they don't, in the vaporizer, basically you're not burning the material. You're just vaporizing the cannabinoids. And so uh, it's, it's uh, you know, I, this, this thing costs $500. And I say to people, how much are your lungs worth? And the vaporizers tend to be expensive, but um, so that's one type. And this is another little vaporizer, a stealth vaporizer. Uh, it's a little tiny thing. And then this is a kind of an inexpensive one. Um, that that's a titanium chamber in between the the, uh, the 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 pot goes in the bottom, and then you light it through the top. So once again, you're not pulling all that stuff through your lungs. This is the stuff to, to clean water pipes. Really nice orange. A cleaner. Um, this is um, this is my outdoor shower. That's a, a solar heater 
they call, like, call them bread box uh, water heater that I bought maybe 15 years ago, and it's worked flawlessly ever since. And there's the shower. I, I think that taking a shower where the water is heated by the sun makes you feel different. I mean, I, maybe my imagination, but I think somehow the molecules are different or something, and, and, and you're taking the shower and you're thinking, uh, the, there's no fuel used to make this water hot, and it's just as hot as, you know, the same thing with, with if you get hot water from your wood stove. Does the bread box have a storage thing attached to it? Yeah, it's just got a tank in it, and it's, uh, um, it's got a black background, and it's a black um, backing, and then it's got a, a double wall plastic uh, uh, um, glazing, which I, I have to replace. But it basically, the sun just comes in and heats up the tank. It's the simplest type that there is. This is a sauna, um, wood-fired sauna. This is um, a uh, sink I built for Leslie out of concrete where she does dyeing. And just the other day, we put a concrete slab floor on this because she was kind of stumbling around on the gravel. Um, this is a pressure washer, one of those tools that I wish I'd had a long time ago. I got this used, um, re reconditioned. Again, as I say, you can look up any of these things on our website. This is my shop, uh, kind of greatly expanded by a wide-angle lens. Um, uh, the, a lot of, do a lot of handles this way from fine stuff on the beach. This is an old Delta radial arm saw that I bought, I don't know, 40 years ago, and it made in America. Um, and, and this is a Delta table saw I got. I, I went through a Bosch saw in a about five years, burned out, and, and I got this one used. Um, this is a Japanese pull saw. I know experienced carpenters who've completely switched to Japanese saws from the old push saws. Um, uh, this is a saw for cutting curves. Uh, these are <clears throat> a couple of drills that I got recently. They're really uh, an upgrade if, um, over the drills that I've had for about 10 years. It's a really good Swiss Army knife. Uh, this is a, a stone for a, a Vin, Vin Gorman, is a very um, highly skilled carpenter, master carpenter, and he turned me on to this sharpening stone here. It's got three stones in it, which you revolve for sharpening chisels and knives. Uh, safety equipment for a chainsaw. Um, uh, I, I wear earphones for any any tool, um, any kind of any kind of power tool. I've been doing it for a long time, and uh, my hearing would be a lot worse if I didn't do that. Gorilla tape. If you don't know about this duct tape made by Gorilla, it's about three times as strong. These are wrecking tools here. Um, the, the lower one is a Japanese um, kind of cat's paw. The next one up is a really a great configuration for a wrecking bar. And then the blue one is a, 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 wonder, a, wonder, a wonder bar for getting into um, tight places. And then the last one there, you can't see the other end of it, but it's for, um, it's for pulling nails. Um, it, it grabs the nail and pulls it out hmm. somehow. Uh, these are different glues that I use that I've got listed. <clears throat> It's a generator. Uh, if we go without down without power for a couple of days, we need to 
um, hook up the office and get it going for the website and everything else. And it's a, a quiet Honda gasoline generator. Uh, my lumber, I think this is about through here. Uh, this is my lumber storage in the back. I had to go vertical because there's just so little space. Is that generator expensive? Uh, it was more expensive than a loud generator. Um, <laughs> um, it's a, you know, it's kind of the best generator. Um, I don't remember how much. It might, it might have been three hundred dollars, four hundred. Um, Roadkill. Um, that was a weasel that <laughs> Brendan O'Connor gave me. Um, so I, I pick up animals off the road and skin them and eat some of them. And um, what I do with the skins, so here, here's my skinning knives. Uh, there's a skunk. Um, <coughs> skunks have beautiful skin. There's, most skunks uh, that get hit release the smell. So once in a while a skunk will get hit and it'll just get hit in the head and it, and it, and the, and it'll, and it won't be an odor. And so what I do with these skins is I, that's a fox, um, I, uh, I skin the animal, I stretch it out, and I salt it down for about a week, and then I roll them up and mail them to a tanning place in Pennsylvania. And about six weeks later, a skin comes back via UPS, beautifully tanned. Um, I've also got a pretty good collection of bones. So if I get like a fox, a dead fox on the road, I'll... I'll get the skin and then I'll take the skull and render the skull. Um, that's um, the middle one there is a bobcat. Mm -hmm. The one on the left is a beaver skull I found in Canada. And that's a beaver tooth there. Mm -hmm. those, uh, those teeth go way back into the jaw so as the beaver chews, it, the tooth keeps growing and coming out. That's um, a have a heart I have four different size traps for animals. Um, I don't really have to use them much now, but one year I trapped 13 possums <laughs> and took them out to uh, Palomarin. Um, this is something that um, I discovered this stuff, and you know, uh, if you get termites, you're kind of in a quandary because it's really expensive to get the guys to come out. And they used to use horrible poisons like methyl bromide, which has been outlawed, and then Vicane. <clears throat> and, um, and now they use orange, some kind of orange treatment and uh, some kind of heat treatment. But I've had, I've had them come a couple of times and do the, 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 uh, some kind of a microwave thing. But I got this stuff here, and it's kind of like a cedar oil. And so when I see this, the, the termite pellets, I spray it. And then I swear, it's, they haven't come back. I, I don't, it's too good to be true. Uh, this is the rat trap to get. If you, if you want a rat trap, this, this really is the rat trap. And you put like peanut butter in that little container there, that thing there. Because with the regular rat trap, I used to have to tie the bait to the, to the trigger. And, and they, those guys, I mean, sometimes they would untie it and leave it un, you know. And so uh, but this, this is really a good rat trap. That's a bird bath. Here's a, here's a, a plastic owl which scares birds away from the garden, right? <laughs> that was a red-shouldered hawk one day. Uh, a garden cart. This is a trailer I use, and, and about once a year I have it fold and take it to the dump with all sorts of things. That's my truck. Um, it's with an awning on it, and... 
I think that's it. That's it. That's a boat. Lloyd Kahn, thank you for your amazing work, and thanks for being here. You've been listening to a conversation with Lloyd Kahn and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.